Thank you so much for joining our Gen Church Wa podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022. We have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, these events, these gatherings, head over to mygenerations.church to check them out. So what does it mean to be spiritual? How does followership of Jesus look in an era of postmodernism and deconstruction? We're getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians called Masterclass, where the Apostle Paul will help us navigate our cultural moment. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. Um, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, starting in verse 1, and this is going to lead into uh, Kyle's Masterclass this morning. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy clang, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And when perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Welcome back to Master Class. I always got to make sure I'm on because I always have challenges with the mics. You would think that getting into this that I would learn how to use the microphone. Maybe I need a Master Class in this. So welcome back to Master Class. Uh, today we cover the oft-quoted love passage. 1 Corinthians 13 is often read at weddings, but we should note this isn't a passage about marriage. This passage is found within the middle of a section about the gathering and gifting of the church. Paul leaves chapter 12 with describing the most excellent way. And what way is that? It is the way of love. 
In this master class, we've been looking at how we filter all of life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in whatever situation or scenario you find yourself in, when questions arise, when cultural tides shift, when, when you are trying to figure out next steps to take, whether in terms of how you view life, how you respond to life, the goal is to filter everything you do and how you respond through who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that means who he says we are and therefore can respond out of that life and love. See, love is the key. It's the engine that drives everything. But we have faulty understandings of love. When I say love, instantly there's all of this baggage and all of this meaning that gets imported into that word. Sometimes we think it's something that you fall into or something you fall out of. It could be the perception that love is an emotion, that it just, you don't feel loving right now, so it doesn't mean you have to act a certain way. That acting loving comes with conditions. We often exchange like or excited or interested or willing for the word love. We insert I love my dog, or I love a good book, or I love a good pizza for the same way we might love our spouse, or a friend, or basketball. <laughs> so we import that. And so it's, we've got to understand what love Paul is talking about here when it comes to the gathering and gifting, the coming together of the church and how we support one another, and how we are God's alternative to our city within our city. See, the definition of love that Paul uses here is rooted in God. It comes from God. It's how God acts. It is his essence. The word is agape here. It's love that gives, expecting nothing in return. If you're a note taker, write that down. The word for love here is love that gives, expecting nothing in return. It's sacrificial. It's other-centered love. It's without conditions or limits. Meaning, in terms of limits, crossing a line, not necessarily beyond your physical limits. Now, if you are hearing me, you may even have a little weight in your chest. If you really start to feel the weight of love without limits of sacrificial love, of other-centered love. Because of this love, it's that what Paul cites, and it's rooted in Jesus. Love is what it means to be truly spiritual. People indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And when you start to feel this and hear this, maybe the implications start to become a little more clear. Phrases like, what about me? Or when counseling a friend, just do what feels right. Or even you do you start to jostle around in our heads and hearts because they are not in alignment with love. These are no longer satisfactory. These aren't as loving as they appear. An act of love focuses more on giving than getting. It focuses more on forgiving than forgetting. See, it takes precisely the stock. It sees a person fully. It sees a situation rightly and chooses to act in the best interest of another person rather than saying, what about me? It means 
that you will have to both take risk and bear responsibility in interpersonal relationships. For the Corinthians community, Paul describes some implications as they struggle to practice the way of Jesus together. They have not loved well. It has shown up in their, their uh, desire to, to reduce gender and, and get rid of that. It, it has shown up in their desire to take the Lord's Supper in certain groups or tears and leave people out. It showed up in how they feel about spiritual gifting and who is more qualified to do what, and who is reduced to their gifts. Rather, as we see here in this moment, Paul says, it, he almost digresses and says, let me help you understand, as you exist within this community, here is how you should exist. He says, if I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The Corinthians were priding themselves in speaking in languages and tongues. What they said wasn't always intelligible. They were feeling good about how spiritual they were. In their pseudo-spirituality, if they don't have love, then they are simply loud and irritating. If there is no love, then they may even talk about how great a believer they are. You may talk about how great a believer you are, how you go to this church or post quotes on Instagram. But if you don't have love, then your action is not truly spiritual. It's not truly edifying the church. Love doesn't easily show up in a way where it can be easily validated by others. We've talked about this section as a whole is putting edification over gratification. But when we flip that and we think I should do what makes me feel good and validated and I seek to do actions that produce that type of affirmation, then we have flipped those two and put our own gratification over the edification and building up of the church. Rather, love builds up. If I have the gift of prophecy or understood all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so that I can move mountains, which is pretty incredible, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul is speaking of religious actions that represent pseudo-spirituality. Know these actions Prophecy, generosity are tools. They are conduits on which meaningful connection can be formed. However, they are no substitute for meaningful connection. No wisdom or gifting or how sacrificial you are truly means anything. You don't achieve anything by simply having the tool. You must construct a relationship of other-centeredness with it. Prophecy tongues, giving sacrificially are tools, are means by which they are pathways by which the love of God flows to us, through us, and to others. And if the Corinthians are to be God's alternative to Corinth in Corinth, then the active lifestyle of love must be present. And Paul goes into saying love is or love is not and often, as, as we read this, we, we think that the, the response, that, that other word, is like a noun 
or an adjective. But what is the word, how they are set up, are as verbs. When it says love is something, the second word in that phrase is a verb. It's active. And there are actually like 15 of them. Meaning you do not get a gold star because you were kind once. You don't get to put a check mark on a, I was loving today because I said one nice word. Check. No, you are to be and become an increasingly kind person. So love is being patient. Love is being kind. Patience is being long-tempered. That's what that word patient means. It's not patient in terms of circumstances, waiting for an outcome to occur. It's patient with people, which can oftentimes be a lot tougher. Though we want circumstances and situations to change, we can be hopeful and maybe we can even exert some sort of will to change that outcome. It is a lot harder to be patient with people because you cannot control others' actions. And what you are choosing to do is you're choosing to suffer. There's a willingness to be wronged again and again. It's you have the power to retaliate, but you never even think it. Now it's interesting that Paul starts with this because the Greeks thought it was a virtue to tell someone off. You may have that short fuse or be prone to giving someone a piece of your mind. But this is the antithesis of patience. Love is being kind. Oftentimes we exchange kindness for niceness. No, kindness is doing something useful for another person. Paul provides no scope. He fully realizes that he is speaking to a group of people that are used to tears. That they're used to seeing other people, evaluating them, sizing them up and saying, I I think I'm better than them. Or I might even see myself even as worse than them, that they are better than me. In some way, feeling proud or having qualifiers or having these caveats. But here's the reality is while patience endures the injuries of others without retaliation, kindness pays them back with good deeds and words. It sees people as equal, standing before God, seeing people as the children of God. Therefore, when you take a step towards someone, when you are kind towards them, you are doing something useful. There is an act of kindness. And after these two positive descriptors of the essence of love, Paul moves into what love isn't. He says, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant. Love is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Dang. (laughs) Um, Hey, God's word's not mine. Hey, See, when it comes to envy, this is not surface desires when you view someone else's circumstances and long for it. It, it, it's really, it's you want what someone else has. And there's also a deeper envy that says, I wish you didn't have it. Mm. Means I'm going to sabotage mm. your good thing to make me feel better. So there, there are some levels to this when we, when we parse out the word envy. It's, I, I remember a few weeks ago when my wife was reflecting on some of the relationships being built in the church. 
And she was reflecting on a conversation. And she says, when something good happens, we are genuinely happy for each other. Meaning there's no one up, no trying to take away the spotlight, no saying, well, that only happened because of this circumstance and this situation. No, love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It means that you aren't trying to sabotage the good of others. You're not wishing that you, what, you, what they have for yourself in such a way that it breeds resentment. Rather, love rejoices in the successes of others and seeks to build up, to clap, to cheer for the successes of others. Love acknowledges that good is a gift, not something to be robbed and stolen from another. Whether you do that because you won up or you've got to insert yourself in the conversation, therefore you don't have to brag. It creates space in the conversation for you to be seen or heard. Rather, another can rejoice and praise you. We should be people that build each other up so we don't have to feel like we've got to create space in the conversation for ourselves, but we know that those who we're in conversation with sees the good in us and says, I see you trying here. I see you do good work here. Thank you for being patient. Hey, I know you were a little short here, but that's okay. I saw you take a step of growth. And because we build a culture like that in our world, we don't have have to then brag or puff ourselves up, which is the root of arrogance. A good measurement to see how you're doing here is to reflect on your last five conversations. Who brought up yourself? Was it prompted by the question of another? Tell me about your week. Tell me about your day. Tell, so that you can freely share. Or did you voluntarily tell a story about yourself using the word I first in the conversation? When someone shared a story, you felt immediately the impulse to respond with a story of your own. While boasting is the verbalization of pride, being arrogant is the hard attitude of pride. Saying, I don't need you, I'm better than you, and I can do without you. But only you can make yourself arrogant or puff yourself up. And so we must take stock in our actions because they are outcomes of this attitude. And instead, what we have to do is if we desire in this moment, if you are feeling the weight or you're like, oh man, that's me. Here's the good news is you don't have to then check a box or try harder. What Paul is simply saying is receive the love of God and respond. Know that you are first loved, therefore then you are able to love others. You don't have to create space because space has already been created for you with an eternal inheritance in Christ. So love does not have to be rude. It doesn't have to be disgraceful or, uh, or tear someone down because what love is rude is it, it, you're doing something not in due form meaning to treat someone in the wrong form. What rudeness is, is not treating someone else as the child of God that they are. And so love is not self-seeking, where you care more about yourself than anyone else, so much so that you are even willing to sin. And this may be one of the most difficult of all. The most obvious cultural example is of the recent divorce of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. In the same vein, Kim Kardashian said that she was divorcing Kanye, not because he was going crazy, which, again, we'll leave that up to the skeptics, but, but <laughs> tread lightly here, but because he was putting himself and his career first. 
then asked why she made the choice for a divorce, divorce, her answer was, I had to put myself first. The conundrum is that we resent the person who puts themselves first while simultaneously applauding ourselves or another for putting themselves first. Love is not self-seeking. I, I point again to what I said a moment ago. Give over get. Forgive over forget. You fully realize that you are willing to absorb in that relationship understanding, but you are still weak, willing to seek the well-being of another. And you can do that because Jesus has first done that for you. Love is not irritable. To say it a different way, love is not easily offended. Oftentimes, the natural conclusion to offense is keeping a list. Some of you have a ledger of wrongs, and your list is front and center, especially when there's conflict. You keep it in your pocket as your phone is there right now, ready to pull it out and use it in a fight to remind your spouse or another a family member, of what they have done wrong when you feel threatened or hurt. Love is not irritable, and love does not keep a record of wrongs. I fully realize that our world is broken, and there is hurt, and there is pain. When we understand and receive that we are not the sum total of our own hurt and pain and that Jesus has absorbed that for us and loves us in spite of how we have even hurt him, we can then gently see the other person, not as the enemy, not as a threat, but as someone to be loved and as that child of God. And so when we remind them of their wrongs, we are playing into the hands of the enemy by using the enemy's tactics on another human. The reason love does not keep a record of wrongs is not to forget or pretend like those things did not happen. But in those moments, it's to remind people precisely who they are and they are not the sum total of their past and their mistakes, just as you are not the sum total of your past or mistakes or your wrong doings. You're not the sum total of your maybe even evil intentions at times. And so to remind someone else of that is to be, is to be used by Satan. Therefore, when we step into a situation in that gut reaction comes out to bring out the past, to, to levy that ledger of wrongs, to, to bring about the hurt, the pain, the, the memories. It's instead you take full stock in them and you willingly choose the way of Jesus to embody the selfless nature of Christ, to choose to be patient, to choose to not be rude, to choose to be kind, to maybe even do a tangible action that lets them know, as my mama once said, you kill them with kindness. Amen. I'm not saying you forget or seek to eliminate those memories 
with those in full view. You choose in action because of the power of the Holy Spirit within you to truly be spiritual and live out the selfless nature of Christ. When I do premarital counseling with couples and I try to help them work through conflict, I try to help them establish some ground rules around conflict because you never bring past circumstances into a present fight. Nor do you lob future possibility onto the present conflict. It's called fighting fair. And if 80% of your marriage is good, focus on the 80%, not the 20. Amen. Trust that God will work in, your, in the heart of the 20% and in your spouse's heart of the 20%. You focus on what is good and build off of that, trusting that if the other person is moving in right relationship with God, that God will sort that out and handle that. This is the same word here when it comes in not keeping a record of wrongs that is used other places in the New Testament for, for how God views us. He's not saying we are good while keeping a list in the other hand. And once we hit a limit, the proverbial shoe will drop. No, he fully sees the list of wrongs, and then he takes them, crumples them up on a piece of paper, and says, they are no more, Amen. and moves forward with us. That's the confidence that we have in Christ because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love does not measure itself on what's fair. Love measures itself on how actions move towards stronger community. In other words, love isn't glad when others go wrong. Love delights in when others choose right. To bear all things is like the covering of a roof that doesn't give way under the weight of a heavy snow or a heavy rain. It shields or covers the weakness of others. It protects when someone messes up and others start to talk. You shut that conversation down. You say, hey, that's inappropriate. If you're concerned, go to them directly. In doing so, love also believes the best about others. That you aren't presuming malicious intent. The simple practice of love, relentless reminders of God's love, shows up in these actions. And we have the hope that love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part as we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will all come to an end. Why do all of these things end but love does not it's because in eternity, the essence of God and how we will relate will be love. It'll be attachment to God and to one another and perfect harmony and unity for eternity. And prophecy is identifying that things are out of alignment and that those out of alignment may be, need to repent and turn back, may need to be brought back into alignment, may need to be called back into the family culture and the family code to re-step into the people they already are in relation of God. They've gotten off track and need to be realigned, and they may not even realize it. So that's what prophecy does, is it calls out, hey, you are, here's the way of God, come back into alignment. And when we hear these words that challenge our heart, it's not me seeing something in you that needs change. It's the Holy Spirit saying, come home. Strengthen the attachment. You are loved. Return to the family. And to do so, you may have to travel a difficult road. A road of repentance and repair. 
for your actions. Prophecy says get in realignment with God so that you can be centered, so centered that the actions of others will not prevent you from the sting of someone else who may not be as loving or may retaliate or may do evil. No, be so centered that when the actions of others try to affect or pull at your life, that in that moment you can return their evil actions with love. The challenge is that we tend to measure love by the degree of control, power, approval, or comfort we have in a relationship. The challenge is that we tend to measure love by the degree of control, power, approval, or comfort we have in a relationship. In every situation, it will never be enough. Therefore, you will inevitably go into protect self mode because you think that you are the only one looking out for you. And your sin in this way has an effect on others. Simultaneously, the sin of another definitely has an effect on you. But God's call is to remember who you are so that when suffering comes, when the pain comes, you can handle. You can absorb the pain and redirect true love in return. The weight of evil causes harm. And the lies of the enemy says that you are alone. But true love is never acted in isolation. Remember, Paul is writing this into a group of the church who are together. He's saying this will come about rightly, fully, when the community, when the church practices this together. It's reinforced by community. And the only way you will be able to love well is not through sheer willpower. God's divine wisdom had a section on love in the gathering and gifting of the church. We need each other to remind each other what true love looks like. There's a book called The Other Half of the Church that stresses and how we are wired for this community, for this attachment-type love, and how we help each other. Uh, It draws on brain science and psychology and says, hey, actually the truth that is in God's Word of how we're designed for community to come together to remind and to live this actually is true and it proves itself out in the sciences. Here's what it says. It says our brains draw life from our strongest relational attachments to grow our character and develop our identity. Who we love shapes who we are. Attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's not an emotion, although we feel it strongly. And attachment runs much deeper in the brain, below willful control. Attachment is the best word scientists could find for what glues people together and their little, and their little children to their parents. It produces an enduring care and well-being for, other, for another. Attachment is a life-giving forever bond with no mechanism in the brain to unglue us. If God has an enduring love for us that brings us good, the only force in the human brain that can understand such lasting kindness and care is the brain's attachment system. Jesus intends his church to function as a family that is bonded together with the joyful attachments of love. Like a baby with their two smiling parents, 
Our churches are supposed to create environments for developing our joyful identities as children of God. When we live in a family of joyful, loving relationships, we put our brains into an ideal zone for developing us into the image of Christ. We are filled with joy and surrounded with stable, deep attachments. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I wish I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul's point building on that last paragraph in context does not have to do with childish or growing up, but with the difference between the present and the future. He's illustrating that there will come a time when the present spirit, the way the spirit manifests, will pass away in eternity. The analogy, therefore, says that the behaviors from one period in one's life is not appropriate to the other. The one is done away with when the other comes. The behavior of a child is, in fact, appropriate for childhood. Meaning, we should expect, as a new church, to not always be as loving as we are called to be, since we are all at various stages. My hope is that we can grow in love as a church that we can develop those deep attachments, that we can call each other to the character and priorities of Christ. But I know we have people at all different stages, that each individual, and even as a church, we are at a certain stage. But for us to grow into maturity is for us to see people, to, to, under, to see them fully as they are and choose love, to choose to build a relationship, to strengthen an attachment, some people wonder, why do you guys do so much shared activity? It's because one of the mechanisms, it's one of the tools that we use to help people build attachments so that when hard conversations come, when difficult circumstances arise, when there's conflict and confusion, that there's some sort of attachment that is there, that then as we remember our attachment with Christ and some shared activity, that we can call each other to be who we are in Christ, to become who we already are in Christ. And the Spirit gives us power and fuel to do this. So the Spirit's giftings, by analogy, are appropriate to the present life of the church. Especially so, since from Paul's point of view, they're the active work of the Spirit in the church's corporate life. So such gifts as we think of our gifts, as we think of how the church shows up, how the Spirit shows up, in the church's final existence, he says, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There is implicit contrast with love, which will never come to an end. Love does not eliminate the gifts in the present, rather it absolutely essential to life both now and forever. The gifts, who you are, what God has gifted you, what the Spirit is doing in your life may be for a season, may be for a time, it may be to build the church up for a season, it may be to help us grow and to strengthen those attachments, and they may be for a season in your life, so your gift may not stay with you forever. 
but it's to be responsive in that moment, to use your gift in that moment, to know that also your gift is not the end, but it is the conduit by which love travels. And so the gifts and the manifestations of them will not be forever. They are to help build the body and the gathered assembly of God's people. And the Corinthians were prideful. They concerned themselves with jockeying for positions and staying at relational distance. The band's going to go ahead and, and go ahead and start coming up. But our role as the church, when we gather and in our gifting, our gathering and our gifting is to build stronger attachments with each other. When someone has a gift of knowledge, when someone has the gift of mercy, when someone has the gift of being patient, man, I would love that gift. <laughs> when we have that ability to do that together, we help each other grow stronger to build that relational connection, to build that attachment so that when the watching world sees Generations Church, they don't see a group of people who are held together by their affinity for basketball or by their likeness for hiking. But they see a church that has differences, stories, uniqueness, all different walks of life, ages, genders, race, and says they love well or at least learning to love well. Forgiving over forgetting, giving over getting, moving towards holistic type community, being what we are to be in eternity. So here's what I want you to do this week. The simple, most, I think, practical action that we can do to build attachments this week and to know that our need is for another is share one way you failed this week with someone else in the church. It doesn't have to be everyone. You don't have to post it on social media. But maybe tell a trusted friend, I felt weak in this way this week. I didn't do as well as I should have. Find someone to tell them that. So not so they can pat you on the back and be like, it's all right, we'll get it together. But no, so that they can practice their gift of love in that moment and call you to become who you are. And that is the hope that in our weakness, in our frailty, that we can call each other, that we can help each other be the, and embody the character and priorities of Christ. And so go ahead and stand, and we're going to sing some songs together to remind each other and ourselves of those gathering and gifting.